Welcome, my dystopians. I'm Raul Guerrero, and you are listening to the Dystopian Republic. Today's story begins on the sunrise of January 6th, 1986. The thirsty soils of Desierto del Sureste held whatever water it had in its bold green brush and deep brown dirt, sucking it out of an underground ocean a full kilometer down. Nunez Court's rise out of the darkness was hushed, eager, and fairly well rested, like Roscoe Sr. and Skye's steps out of its main residence. Exits Roscoe Jr., Wynn, Autoline, McKinley, Nicola, Consuela, Hudson, Gilly, Isidro, and Cornette made in kind. Inside a gazebo that circled over the cul-de-sac's end, Roscoe Sr. read down a notepad page that listed the responsibilities for breakfast. Sky cut out the inner flesh of the oranges, grapefruits, and kumquats. Nicola spent the entirety of autumn growing in the backyard of the leftmost house. In a henhouse that covered a third of the ground next to the citrus garden, Gilly was meticulous in her lifting of the birds and collecting of their eggs. Next to that shed was an open-air one of equal size where Cornette shoved three broilers down metal funnels and killed them as humanely as he could with his knife. Adoline filled metal buckets with water from a well that had a hold on one of the world's deepest underground oceans. Her gallons were crucial in bringing to fruition the recipes Roscoe Jr. put together to accommodate his family's living situation. The end result was a table of freshly squeezed juices, a bowl of fruit, and large plates of chicken and eggs. Hudson found peace in the dry winds, cooling him and pushing the sand around, glinting his gratitude over being untouched by the civil war that was an hour's drive away. The tranquility he found was too cogent for Wynne to see as anything other than a portent. In either case, McKinley huddled her family in an orison that thanked God for bringing the Nunezes together for yet another gentle morning. Consuela couldn't stress enough how blessed the family was to have the privilege to live their truths as white daubers. Isidro expressed his confidence that God will continue allowing them to go on with living as they've been able to for the past year. He added that the creator of everyone and everything won't ever raise their court to the ground as long as its members remain believers of his word. When a twelve-strong amen closed the orison, the Nunez's wasted little time getting into the eating and drinking, their stomachs starting to fill up. Wynne asked Roscoe Sr. about the latest news regarding the Yellow Jacket-Black Hornet conflict. Her father wasn't surprised that she'd want to know about that fight, and neither were her siblings. Isidro demanded that she quit asking about that, calling the war 
irrelevant to their lives. Consuela concurred with his comment, threatening to punch Wynn in the shoulder every future time she brought up that subject. Roscoe Sr.'s yell to stop it halted the quarrel short of gaining any noteworthy distance. Answering Wynn's question, he said that the Black Hornets have liberated Agnes Beach and grounds nearby. He added that all of the Cierto del Sudeste had been freed of Gregorio Jr.'s control, saying that Roy Sr.'s forces were preparing to push their offensive into La Gran La Nuda. That had winds, nerves, shaking less, and made the apprehensions some of her siblings hid inside easier to keep there. But it was a transmission dated November 28, 1985, a detail Roscoe Sr. didn't have the heart to tell her about. He hoped that his update either held up or was followed by a better one, knowing how vulnerable the court would be to an attack if the perimeter the Black Hornet secured around Desierto del Sureste was to no longer hold. Roscoe Sr. hadn't heard a thing on the radio since then because Consuela and Isidro smashed it in front of him during a heated argument. It was why his sixth and ninth children were sitting uneasily, still imagining the pains from the whips he gave them with his military belt. No one other than those three knew of the spat that got Consuela and Isidro close to being thrown out to fend for themselves. Seventy miles away, the attack on Preston City concluded after a week of combat that transformed Bromelia's adaptation of America's desert southwest into a wasteland no less desolate than an idled industrial park. Gregorio's yellow jackets got down to the door-to-door -door raids that rescued their own and wrangled up black hornets, red wasps, and white daubers, sorting them out by the color of their stinger. Their stares at their captured had the cruelty and callousness of their fighting, stemming from the offense they took to their aircraft being sabotaged or destroyed. The Yellow Jackets knew their effort to win the Civil War had been taken back by quite a while as they now had to put time, energy, and money into rebuilding their aircraft arsenal. This was why their attack on Preston City was their way of bringing a little pride back to their cause after a severe embarrassment. In addition, many of the perpetrators were from the parched conurbation they just captured and among the detained. Some of the detainees were still in their yellow jackets, which was how they successfully snuck into the airports and air bases after taking out the troops whose identities they assumed. Once Preston City was solidly in Gregorio Jr.'s hands, a tungsten turtle on reinforced wheels arrived under the escort of its equally fortified hatchlings. Its right door echoed its slide open, and Gregorio III and Gregoria stepped out in all their regal ruthlessness. They walked over to a portion of the detained that contained members of each faction involved in the Civil War. The Black Hornets and Red Wasps stared at them with the same 
enmity they had for each other. Their yellow jacket adversaries frowned in relief over their imminent trips back home, while the white daubers were unsure of what to expect as they were neither hostile to their detainers nor loyal to them. Gregorio III hoped the Black Hornets were mighty proud of what they broke down and equated the Red Wasps to vermin that find ways to reinfest whenever the hot weather does, no matter how diligent people like him were with their hitting and spraying. The white that hewed the daubers reminded Gregoria of the Nunez's, plunging how proud she was of being a lobo down in extremely shiver-inducing mud. Her mom and dad's failure to maintain custody of nine of the ten Nunez children was a defeat she deemed unforgivable, having held that against them ever since. But Gregorio III was quick to move on from that loss, believing that it would someday be rectified. His willingness to forgive got his sister to order their parents to get back what they lost, a request that went undelivered for nearly 20 years. By the time that demand was made, the Nunezes were already living in the loneliness that formed their court's functioning brain and beating heart. Despite Gregorio Jr.'s free reign over the mainland, no one in his regime had been able to find the mentioned settlement anywhere. Back in Nunez court, a male and female walked into one of the homes and locked themselves in the bathroom. He handed her a CB radio she turned on while sitting on the toilet, spinning the knob until she tuned into a channel the Yellow Cross operated. Nunez court's precise handwritten coordinates ready. Gregorio grew angry at the jokes her non-Yellow Jacket detainees made about the different ways they've killed Yellow Jackets or seen them die. The jests were stabs that entered her inferior vena cava and exited her pulmonary artery, enraging her into ordering her troops to prepare and shoot every non-loyalist the way her father punished and executed the people on his list at the National Stadium a year earlier. Gregorio III informed Gregoria that there were two self-proclaimed yellow jackets who wished to speak with them. His sister told her troops to get on with the execution processes as she and he tend to urgent business. Their steps out of the turtle came in front of Gregorio III's announcement that the search for the court was over. The Nunezes played soccer on the road between the gazeboed circle and buttressed door that was their settlement's only way in and out. Their game had the females Sky, Wynn, Adoline, McKinley, Consuela, and Gilly on one team and the males Roscoe Sr., Roscoe Jr., Nicola, Hudson, Isidro, and Cornette on the other. The two sides traded goals from when the sun was atop the sky to the time it was scheduled to set into the horizon. Their penalty shootout to decide the winning team was permanently paused by the faraway boom of what the family thought was a bomb. 
the Nunez kids evacuated into a bunker that was a meter shy of touching the court's outermost boundaries. Their parents slipped, buckled, and strapped on synthetic fibers that rendered them invulnerable to almost all bullets. They loaded up their guns they used in coexistence with Kyoline and Kestrel during Adelino Sr.'s seizure of Robapel. Ten feet below, their kids looked up at the bunker ceiling, agonizing over their solitude, finally being imperiled. That said, they were confident that Roscoe Sr. and Skye would gun Gregorio Jr.'s troops down in one relentless go. Though their parents were second bananas during the Robopeli's mission, they would have their day in the spotlight when they turned what would have been Gabino Sr.'s only defeat into a draw. That loss turned Ty arose in a drenched and humid landmass located halfway between Brazil and Sierra Leone, Amarifrica. In June of 1966, Gabino declared war on the country after his intelligence reported that Alexis Jr. had a stronghold in the capital of Circle Town. It was an action taken on the grounds that the government was knowingly giving aid and comfort to a wanted human rights violator. Gabino deployed several of his battalions and those from Robapel and Nefuala. His closeness to Carlisle III was the cologne to the stink Adelino Sr. and Bird III smelled from the idea of them working with a devout liberal. The hatred they had for the same man made putting their personal S-word aside unchallenging. Gabino, Adelino, and Burr's assault on Amorifrica began on the 14th anniversary of Alexis Sr.'s assassination and his son's takeover of Bromelia not long after. Their charge into the nation had three parts of entry, one in the island's north, another in its west-southwest, and the third in its east-southeast. Gabino had three-quarters of the man and firepower, while Adelino and Burr split the last 25% into two-eighths. As such, the invasion was more of an overlong series of tactical raids, reckless pursuits, and intense shootouts. Roscoe Sr. and Skye were two of the Bromelian soldiers involved in the attack, gunning down aggressors and leading civilians to safety, even when they were the only invaders for miles. In the years since, their days of being a two-person army, they've sustained little in the way of wear and tear as far as their fighting prowesses went. Roscoe Sr. scaled the corner at the leftmost backyard, while Skye did so at the one to the main residence's right. They aimed their guns out at opposite sides of a horizon as secluded as their court, or so it was fought when the settlement was a dream of theirs. The Nunez kids gazed at their meal packs, bottled water, and weaponry, expecting the coming fight to keep them underground for a long period of time. Their parents stood guard all night into the next morning and minutes before the middle of the day. The strike of noon was followed by a second bomb-like boom which turned out to be less 
than a mile from where Roscoe Sr. was. He and Skye looked toward the noise, finding that it was a boulder that broke off and tumbled down a rock formation. The burden they felt fall off their backs was the reassurance their kids would feel shortly after engulfing them in the lightest exultation they've ever experienced. That false alarm brought their sense of security back to where it was before the first boulder dropped. It dissolved their minds of any possibility that the falling boulders were omens. Over the next six months, Yellow Jackets and Black Hornets engaged in a vicious toe-and-fro that gradually saw Royce Hold and Desierto del Sureste loosen. Prior to the Battle of Preston City, the revolution had a one-person killing machine that enjoyed the same success that Roscoe Sr. and Sky did in Amberifrica. But when that clash came about, the Yellow Cross had their person they could rely on to single-handedly wipe out whole infantries. That individual was the difference maker in what should have begun the revolution's liberation of La Gran Lanuda. Due to serious illness, their black, horneted equal was powerless to stop Preston City from being in the Yellow Cross's hands once more. The smaller Royce territory in Desierto del Sureste got, the rougher the knights became for the two who divulged the court's coordinates. That choice the male and female made was one they grew to regret, excusing it as them simply snapping. Whoever they were, their bet that Gregorio Jr.'s kids won't reach the court was what kept their betrayal a secret. The 8th of July was void of any bad feeling beyond the triple digits heating away the near freeze that threatened the court's crops on a nightly basis. It was Skye's birthday and her family spent weeks concocting a celebration that was intended to be her best yet. Cornet turned a large broiler through a feather removal machine Roscoe Sr. made. Not a strand of fur was anywhere on the gutted and plucked fowl once it dried. Autoline took a dozen packs of instant mix from the bunker while Nicola squeezed the juice and cut its vesicles out of oranges. They poured the aforementioned and water into a heavy pot using a shovel to stir it into an orange shake. Roscoe Jr. and Wynn embraced side by side, gazing up at a portrait of them when they were in the middle of their childhoods. She winced at the looks he inherited from their parents, giving her facial features a head redder than the freshest strawberry. Wynn saw identical crimsons on her other siblings, making Roscoe Jr. the only one who didn't have a droplet of that hue anywhere on his exposed skin. Hudson was having his daily stroll around the court when he heard someone plop onto the floor and Gilly screaming her quick breaths. He rushed into the rightmost house and found her in the bathroom, lying partly prone with eyes that were seeing ghosts 
fly all around like a whirlpool, sucking her soul into its doom. Hudson pleaded with Gilly to snap out of her spell, saying that it's been over for a year and that she's fully recovered from that ordeal. His words quelled her into shakily favoring her right forearm, agonizing over the snake bite that was there all over again. Although no venom entered Gilly's bloodstream, the fat, heavy viper that drove its fangs into her did so with such force that it might as well have injected its poison. Hudson moved his warmth over to her, grinning her weak face and relaxing her nerve fibers. The thanks Gilly gave him for being her shoulder to cry on flattered him into telling her that his purpose as a Nunez was to mediate, weigh, and balance. Isidro's mind was focused on delicately dotting and stroking the finishing touches on a watercolor painting that took him lots of time and many drafts to do right. The work of art Consuela spent her spare time creating was all text and no pictures, but its value was equally high, having a process every bit as painstaking. Roscoe Sr. watched the sunny sky and felt its arid breeze from the balcony of his home, which was the highest point in the court. Suddenly, his stomach's gastric acidity rose to a level that had him lightly clenching his teeth at the discomfort. That climb in hydrogen potential was a departure from the opposite problem that plagued his digestive health. McKinley was downstairs, staring into pictures of her parents in their army uniforms, remembering the stories of their heroism with pleasure. One tale especially dear to her heart was the one about the day she and her siblings were born. In 1970, Roscoe Sr. and Skye were renting out a property in Circletown as their court was being constructed. He was counting the days to the end of his tenure as Bromelia's ambassador to Amarifrica. His job provided for his wife, who was in the third trimester of her pregnancy, fighting off the pain caused by the decouplets in her belly. The hospital Sky went to to have the babies in didn't have any beds available, so they transformed one of the mattresses in an open-air spa into a delivery room. From dawn to dusk, doctors brought Roscoe Jr., Wynn, Ottoline, McKinley, Nicola, Consuela, Hudson, Gilly, Isidro, and Cornette out of her uterus. On a flatland, halfway up a mountain slope, their births came about to a measured, pianic, fluty, and stringy fall of water, humming and whistling beside the emerald brush and umber rock. That melody doped up McKinley's grin on a sensualness more intense than the sun's ultraviolet rays, distracting her from what was on its way. Six miles from the court, a yellow-crossed convoy approached with Gregorio III and Gregoria sharing the turtle that was directing it from the very middle. They had more than enough arms and people to shoot the settlement from existence, but the real mission 
was for the two leads to return the Nunez kids to Lobotown. Gregorio III and Gregoria were fine with not destroying the court or ending Roscoe Sr. and Skye damning to hell their parents' unsmiling order to kill them. The court's gazebo was where almost every Nunez sat with their completed dinner and concealed presence, waiting for the matriarch to step out. Skye gazed at herself in the mirror of the bedroom she and Roscoe Sr. slept in. The drying water on her exposed skin had the fragrance of orange and grapefruit peels. Skye was in a dress she sewed to graceful perfection with denims that no longer fitted her children. She strided out of her bedroom through the living room and out the front door, exposing herself to the unison surprise her loved ones screamed out. She bent her legs and clawed her cheeks, smiling at the lovely buffet and her beautiful family. After an hour of hugs, kisses, and consuming, Isidro stood up and had Skye unveil his present. His gift was a lifelike image of a towering altar of the respect Bromelia paid to the Virgin of Guadalupe, built in 1586 and considered by many to be the nation's oldest living landmark. Isidro drew himself and his family collectively exalting the Holy Cross with their heads, arms, torsos, legs, and feet. To say that Skye was impressed would grossly understate how proud she was of him for the painting he made. The critic in Gilly couldn't find anything of substance to criticize, imagining that pilgrimage like it was embarked on yesterday. Growing a tad jealous of Isidro's reception, Consuela told him to step aside, standing before everyone else to read a poem she thinks will be even more impressive. Her verselet went like this, we the family on the court in the desert, cuddling in a love warmer than a wintry wool, our isolation inebriating us from the torment of the outside, our ascent into a salvation that knows nothing of mortality and should the court ever fall, the bond shared by its people never will, whether in Duras or outside its hold. We are the Nunezes, the duodecet in Desierto del Sureste, together like links of a chain. Right after Consuela finished and before her family could applaud, they heard bullets impact, grenades explode, and flames blow out. The kids ran into the basements of their respective homes, down another set of stairs, and into the bunker that said houses were all connected to. Their parents armed themselves to the teeth and armored their bodies to a degree they thought would suffice in making them invincible. Gregorio III and Gregoria firmly held hands as the court began to be visible, speeding up their heart rates as the moment they've waited years for was nigh. Beyond the battle itself, they were surprised at how out in the open the settlement was as there were few trees, brushes, and formations hiding it from view. This took Gregoria to the conclusion that the court's lack of contact with outsiders was due to the harshness of the surrounding terrain. 
the settlement was no less than nine miles from the nearest roads in all directions. It was accessible only by foot or snow-tired vehicle, assuming that the traveling parties had the water to get there as the extreme heat and near-zero humidity would vaporize it expeditiously. Out the turtle's intercom, Gregoria greeted Roscoe Sr. and Skye and gave them one chance to surrender their kids over to her and Gregorio III without bloodshed. She said that the Nunez parents had no place to run or hide, adding that their only ways out were to be in compliance or a pit six feet into the baked sand. Without relent, Roscoe Sr. told Gregoria, and Gregorio III to burn in hell with their mom and dad, saying that they'll be the ones who will eternally sleep. Sky yelled that if the Yellow Cross wanted their kids, then they should come and get them. Atop the balcony, she and her husband opened fire on their far-right surrounders. From bullet one, they had the upper hand as the Yellow Cross couldn't see them, but they could see every move their attackers made. In five minutes, the Nunez parents reduced their opponents' headcount by a tenth, but they suffered no harm. Gregorio III was at a loss to grasp why his troops were falling like dominoes, but Gregoria figured out the story behind their opponents' apparent indestructibility. Hearing their parents fight like mad, the Nunez kids embraced and prayed as the shooting and detonating continued for three whole days. When the sun began its rise on the 4th, the bullets and grenades ceased and the strong winds and grainy sand returned. That made it clear to the Nunez kids that a victory had been achieved, making them feel pressed between a victorious relief and defeatist dread. McKinley was sure that her parents killed and or drove the Yellow Crossers away. Her belief that they could never lose did not have a single crack or bend to its resolve. Isidro had much of her optimism, but with the caveat that his parents' battle with the Lobo kids might have been the jinx he feared would come sooner or later. Wynne's body temperature was one-tenth of a degree from rendering her sick with a fever, palpitating her heart and drenching her clothes in sweat. She turned to Roscoe Jr. for comfort, a consoling he gladly gave without reluctance. Wynne knew that the bubble she and her family were in had popped and that they could never again be totally safe. Part of Consuela wanted to come out of the bunker and see the end result for herself, but that inclination collided with Hudson's disinterest in finding out. His refusal to walk up the stairs was fueled by an innocence as intense as the triple-digit heat, yet more vulnerable than paper-thin ice. Cornette was an impulse away from running back up, expecting to see his parents limp with their faces strongly looking ahead. Following Hudson's lead, Gilly too didn't feel like finding out how the battle ended, fearing that she'll make a discovery that she will never be able to unlook. 
Adeline ordered her siblings to get up and follow her outside, a command that fell on ears more deaf than those after years of endlessly enduring positive decibels. Her pleas for her siblings to stand and follow pushed Nicola to tell their siblings that to not see what became of their parents was to deny them the closure they deserve. Cornette, McKinley, and Autoline agreed, while Roscoe Jr., Consuela, and Isidro weren't so sure. Seeing that Gilly, Hudson, and Wynn still weren't budging, Autoline asked them if their own egos mattered more than giving their parents the dignity they deserve. The dancer question dealt to the three's refusals were existent, but inconvenient. Cornette ordered Gilly, Hudson, and Wynn to follow him and the others out, adding that they ought to comply if they don't wish to set the honor of their last name ablaze. His order scared the three into going along with where their siblings wanted to go, taking them to a scene reminiscent of a twister's aftermath. Nowhere in the court was there a place that hadn't been blown up, burned, damaged, or defaced. Adeline's shouts for Roscoe Sr. and Skye increased in volume with each passing utterance. Her parents not responding, McKinley's optimism started to melt, as did Isidro's hope for the best. But what the Nunez kids saw at the gazebo would start a change in their lives that they could never undo. The mini pavilion was in ashes, and Roscoe Sr. and Skye were skewered by their elbows and knees with the beams that provided it support. If that wasn't brutal enough, their bodies were littered with golf ball-sized bullets that cracked, punctured, chipped off, and glassified their armor. The Nunez kids hurled down into a morning that hurt with the sharpness of boiling hot iron pokers sticking into their aortas and out them. Cornette wished he hadn't been so eager to leave. Roscoe Jr. wasn't too much of a shock to even talk, and Hudson yelled that the deaths were why he insisted on staying in the bunker. Gilly screamed, feet above the tops of her lungs, until her voice degraded into unintelligible whistles. Wynne sobbed, crawled over to her parents, and stridently begged them to come back and apologized for letting them fight as two against the whole battalion. McKinley clenched her hair and cried into the asphalt, looking on a side blacker than the abyss. Adeline called herself and her siblings cowards for declining to learn how to fight when they could've. It was a shame that gravely injured Consuela's brain, making her imagine herself breathing her last breath and ascending to the heavens to see her parents again. As for Isidro, he channeled his grief in a need to lay his mom and dad to rest in the most proper way possible. Nicola wasn't grieving any less than his siblings were, but was gruntled that Gregorio III, Gregoria, and their troops were nowhere in sight. Wanting to dignifiedly bury their parents, the Nunez kids were barged in on by the precipitous surround of the very people that were fought to have moved onward. 
it erased whatever differences they had when it came to their feelings as they all were now on a boat that was full of woe and empty of joy. Everywhere the Nunez kids turned, they saw Yellow Crossers aiming guns, seeing no avenue for them to escape through. All the ten could do now was have their hands up and brace for the end, but killing was the last thing on Gregorio III or Gregoria's agenda. The son and daughter of Gregorio Jr. had plans that were of a different and identical nature. Deep within Gregoria's triumphant scowl was a girl who was ecstatic that she and her siblings were together again. Gregorio III directed the Nunez kids to step away from their deceased parents, urging them to obey if they valued their well-being. Gregoria promised the Ten that their compliance will spare them of her father's wrath. Having nowhere else to go, and in no position to fight, the Nunez kids walked into their arrests, pleading Gregorio III into ordering the troops to stand by. Gregorio ordered her subordinates to properly bury Roscoe Sr. and Skye, wanting to bring the Ten to enough of a peace that their callers will stay at 70 degrees. Upon the burial's completion, Gregorio III had 90% of his troops maintain the battle line, while he, his sister, and the last tenth moved with the Nunez kids. Riding in the turtle, Roscoe Jr. and Wynne silently mourned onto one another, cracking out of Gregoria a sympathy that wasn't easy for her to hide from them or her brother. While Gregorio III had less difficulty in hiding his pity, that wasn't to say he had none, deeming it more appropriate to save such a solicitude for later. Six sluggish, bumpy hours into the relocation, the dry, sandy yellow gave one eighth to a hydrated, clear green. Nicola expected that he and his siblings would undergo a washing and conditioning that would turn them into good yellow crossers. His expectation was also Autoline's, making her swear to God that she won't bow down to Gregorio Jr. under any circumstances. However, Nicola, his aforementioned sister, and their siblings fell into an affright when a medieval yet marginally refurbished castle faded into their sight lines, and as fate would have it, its aging gothic form and the enclosing droughty forest was the Nunez kids' message that their tribulation was about to reach a level they've never experienced. And that was the Nunez court. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to the story I just gave. Share this show with everyone you know. Make sure they share it with everyone they know. Check out my website at www.rss.com slash podcasts slash the dystopian republic. Send me your respectful questions and constructive feedback at Raul Guerrero Jr. 95 at gmail.com. And lastly, support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypal me slash Raul Guerrero Jr. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero, and come again for another gripping, thoughtful, and sinister episode of The Dystopian Republic.